Welcome to Hope Springs Community of Faith Podcast, where we love people and we love God. I think, I mean, I think music is such a gift. Um, you know, birds don't just sing to say I made it through the night, but to say I'm still here as well. And I think that there's times in life that we, we need those moments to say, I'm, I'm still here, you know? I'm, I'm still here even after whatever, even after a giant snowstorm, we can all gather together and sing and just say, I'm still here. And I think emotions are, are such a weird thing about how, like, the depths of sadness and the mountaintops of joy end at the same place, usually, in tears. In moments of great fear or extreme excitement, it ends in the same place. Like that gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach that makes you feel like you're about to throw up. Or shaky hands or nervousness. But like Bob prayed, we can figure out so much of this world with our rational mind. But some of the deepest, most beautiful aspects, the things that make life worth living, we discover with our emotions, with our passions, passions that God created. And then we express them through art, whether it's pictures, words, movements, song. The things that are worth living come out in those moments. And all of those things are basically our way of saying, I'm still here. Might be broken up, beat up, failed, made huge mistakes, embarrassed my family, embarrassed myself been addicted, lied, got ripped off, been selfish, but I'm still here. And in the words that Bob penned at the end of that, you broke my chains and set me free before I even knew. that's what God does. He finds us in that place, sets us free. And then we get the opportunity to spend, I'm not going to put any time stamp on anyone's life, but the next X number of years, figuring out how to walk like a free man or woman, how to live like a free man or woman, how to be not partially human, but fully human, embracing the mental and the emotional, the sad and the happy, the good and the bad, the winter and summer, darkness and light, and find out what it means to really live. I'm going to read in Nehemiah. I'm going to start in chapter 1. 
verse 11 in the middle of his prayer that we talked about last week and read about eight verses into chapter 2. So God, I beg you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful that day. And grant him compassion before this man, because I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came about in April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the wine was before him, and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, up until now, I had never been sad in his presence. But the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you aren't sick? This has to be sadness of the heart. And I was very afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and the gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you ask? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. So I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given for me to the governors of the princes beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the walls of the city and the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. God, this morning... Again, I'm thankful for people to record this for us and just the beauty of stories and how they um, allow us to see things and recognize things in our own life that we might never recognize if we were having to look at ourselves. Thank you, God, for examples, not just Nehemiah, but other people that you've placed in my life of leadership and decisions and the ability to move forward and, and walk in your will and your way. Thank you, God, personally for people that you put in my life that have challenged me with ideas and opinions and beliefs. Thank you, God, for giving us minds that can understand discussion and um, good debate and just the ability to think through problems and come together, figure things out, Thank you, God, for your patience, but then also giving us patience. For your grace and your example for us of mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness and writing into our DNA the ability to forgive. And I love you, Jesus. Amen. So we were in the series Under Construction, and last week um, we talked about the first part of the story of Nehemiah and how basically he starts out admitting his own shortcomings and his own faults. Doesn't point fingers at everyone else. He doesn't shift the blame. He takes it on himself. He looks at the situation. 
He looks at his life. He looks at his country's life. He looks at a city that's completely destroyed, and he repents because Nehemiah understands before there can be any restoration, there has to be repentance. And he knows that he's as much a fault as anyone else. And we talked about how often we love to point fingers at everyone else and figure out all the problems that are wrong with our world, but at the end of the day, what's wrong with my world? I am. And before I can find that and understand that, I can't move ahead. That has to be the beginning spot, is for me to understand that the problems that ail me are mine, of my creation. God has set me free from them a long time ago. I just don't live like it or walk in it. But it's on me. And then the next step is repentance. I'm so thankful for a God who does forgive and is gracious and is merciful and hears my prayers and starts me over and all of the different promises and verses in the Bible about how his mercies are new every morning, every day is new, how I'm a new creature, a new creation, all of these different kinds of things. It's this constant renewing and I get a new opportunity regardless of all the junk that's in my past. And then I also saw in that, and we talked about a little bit, how it's really, really easy to make suggestions, and it's really, really, really hard to make decisions, and there's a huge difference. But most of us want to be in a position where we're making decisions, but we live in a position where all we do is make suggestions. And we never have that drive or ability to make decisions. We just like telling other people what we think that they should do while never doing it ourselves. And Jesus addressed that when he said, you heap burdens upon other people that you yourselves would never carry. You talk and talk and talk and point out all the mistakes in everyone else's lives. But inside, you're a rotting tomb. You love to point out their errors, but you never look at your own. You love to give suggestions, but you never have to make a decision. And now we get to the second part of Nehemiah. And just as a little bit more catching up, Nehemiah is getting ready to embark on a mission to rebuild a city that's been destroyed for over 100 years. People have been working on it in 14-year segments and not been able to complete it, not even been able to get the walls to close. There's holes in the walls. The doors are ripped off the city. These giant gates that protected the city. Everything about the city that guarded it, protected it, is torn apart. And I spoiled the end of the story last week saying Nehemiah fixes it in 52 days. That could be any one of our lives, any one of our relationships. Don't look at this story as a city. Look at it as you. Your life, your relationship, whether it be to food, another person, alcohol, whatever it is, job, school, time, whatever this relationship is, look at it there and see if that's broken down and crumbling and completely destroyed and unsafe. How do you fix it? Step one, he repented. Step two, we're going to see him walk. The Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and there's a lot of different things. A lot of people talk about what cupbearers were. We don't, like, it's very foreign to our society, obviously. But a cupbearer was a very respected and important part of a king's entourage. Apparently, kings were getting assassinated all the time, even though I, 
when I read that in like Wikipedia and they talk about, oh, kings were getting assassinated all the time, but then these kings were kings for like 50 years, 60 years, so they weren't really getting assassinated all the time, but people like saying that. So a cupbearer was this guy who would, could, upon the request of the king, drink the wine prior to giving it to the king to make sure if it was poisoned, then he would die instead of the king. So it was a respected position. It was a trusted position. It was uh, a courageous position. You had to be courageous, and it was compensated the same. They were paid very well, but that's not the only responsibility of a cupbearer. They were also like a sommelier, I don't know the right, how, do you, how you say it, the word for the people that know all about wine and all the different wines from all the different regions and can just, yeah, they can taste it and tell you, oh, this is from here, on this vintage, all that kind of stuff. He was also that. He picked out, he went through, traveled all over and picked out all these different wines for the king to make sure that whatever party he was throwing, whatever he was doing, it was the best. And he could explain it. And if people had questions, he was there to explain. So he was very knowledgeable and he was very faithful. He was very courageous he was very interesting. And they were always one of the two or three most important people inside the king's court. They had influence in policymaking. They had influence in the king's personal life. They had immense influence over the entire nation because the king trusted this guy. This guy's laying his life, literally laying his life on the line for me every single day. And he's making me look good in front of my friends. So that was his job. Another interesting thing about this time in the world history, you didn't want to look sad in front of the king. I mean, you heard here, he was very nervous because the king called him out on it. Part of the reason he was hired was because of his appearance, because of his personality. And when you would look sad in the king's presence. The king, because he was pretty self-centered, would only think, well, you're only sad because your needs aren't being met or you're sad or upset about the way that I'm leading. So the kings would take this very personally. And they didn't also, they just didn't want sad people around them all the time. I mean, I, I, I get it. Like, I, I understand. I'm, I've said it enough times from up here. I'm not the most compassionate person in the world. And I don't necessarily get sadness unless I'm experiencing it myself, then I understand it. But if other people are, I don't necessarily get it. And so I'm always like, oh, come on. And both of the female people in my family get frustrated when I try to cheer them up when they're sad because I, it turns into like aggravation and all that other kind of stuff. But so, so I get it. I get this king not wanting to be surrounded with sadness. And so his way of getting rid of the sadness, though, wasn't to fire people. It was just to be like off with his head or whatever because... I don't know. They didn't care about human life. I don't know. So he's very nervous. So he goes into this meeting and he said, I've never once, never have I been sad in the king's presence. And he's been praying. He's been praying this prayer for several months now. Started in December. It's now April. And he's praying and he's like, God, I, you've got to show me favor before this guy. I'm very nervous. When I step in front of this king, you have to open up some doors. Please, please, please show me favor. Constantly, every day he's praying this prayer. He finally steps into the king's presence and the king says, why do you look so sad? He's nervous and he doesn't know what to say. And the king says, well, you're not unhealthy. Seems like you're heartbroken. Which I think is pretty cool that the king recognized what was going on. 
It's really good to have friends like that. Even if they come from unexpected places. The kind of people that can look at you and say, you look heartbroken. Or they say, you look sick. Although sometimes we don't like hearing that when people say, are you sick? You look like it. You look heartbroken. And this is Nehemiah's first chance to take a step. Because after we've repented, that isn't the end. That's like the preamble before the beginning, the preface. That's like what has to happen right here for us to be able to be in a spot to take this first step. And the, very, the way that you take your first step is you have to walk on fear. You can't be afraid. You can't be sitting there scared to death. You have to walk on fear. And so Nehemiah has been waiting and praying and begging God, waiting for his timing, and he feels like this could be the right time. And so he steps out, scared to death, in courage, and he's just straightforward. And he's like, "How? You think I look sad? You think I look sad?" Yeah, how could I be happy when the place that my ancestors is completely destroyed and nothing's happening and no one cares? I heard the stories of the destruction. I've heard the story, if you saw the way that where I'm from, who I am, my very people, me, is completely ransacked. Yeah, I'm sad. Nothing's being done about it. I need something to change. And these words that he uttered, like that's one thing for me and you to say it to one another. But for him to tell the king that, he's basically telling the king, you haven't done your job, man. There's cities out here in your province that are being desecrated. There's places in this world that are being destroyed and you've done nothing. And I'm sitting here handing you this wine from this region and I'm telling you all about it and everybody's okay and I'm supposed to be okay? I'm not okay. He felt like it was God's timing for him. And he walked on top of his fear and he stood there courageously. And I think that we, no, I think that I have this very big problem of doing that with God. I'm afraid to be honest with him. And I'm afraid to be honest with myself most of the time. I'm afraid to be honest with God. Because there's times that I feel like this, like Nehemiah, and my king isn't like this physical guy out there. It's usually me, but sometimes when my life is right and I can see things correctly, it's God. And I look at these spots in my life that are destroyed or falling apart or broken or breached or unprotected, and I, I don't, and God looks at me, and I can hear him, not audibly, inside, like it's this, this moment of clarity. And I feel close to him, and I feel him saying, man, what's wrong? Why do you look so sad? A lot of times it happens from a friend. If I'm listening to a song, if I'm sitting on the front porch, watching my smoke go up into the sky, 
and I'm finally quiet. And I hear him say, what's wrong? And typically I push it aside. I'm like, nothing, I'm good. Just going to get through it. Put on my work boots. I actually wore work boots today. I never wear work boots. And get going. I'm strong. I can handle it. I'm a man. That's how you created me. It's not your fault. It's mine. But inside, like if I were to actually look deep inside, you know what I would say? I feel like you've abandoned me, man. Like, I feel like, God, that you've given me these promises and sent me on my way and said to do these things, and then guess what? I feel alone. I've asked for your guidance. I don't know how many more passages of Scripture I can read because it's not making sense to me right now. Maybe I look back and I say, you know what? I've just come through a hard time and I didn't see you there. I thought when you came into my life and you rescued me and all of this stuff, that you promised me you would give me this life. And life abounding, where's it at? And Nehemiah wasn't afraid. He said, you want to know why I'm sad? Because I feel like you're not doing anything about the things you should be doing things about. And he's finally honest. Maybe your honesty is saying, you know what? I don't even believe you're there. I don't believe you're real. If you were real, this, 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 this wouldn't be there. If you were loving God like we sing about every Sunday, this, 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 this wouldn't be happening. You repent. You walk on fear. And then the king says, so what do you want to do? Nehemiah says, I want to fix it. I don't, I don't want us to send somebody to fix it. I don't want to pay somebody to fix it. I want to fix it. And the king's like, when? Right now. Like, I want to leave now. How long are you going to be gone? A long time. I want to leave now. I want to get there. I want to start working on what needs to be done, and I want to fix it. He's ready to walk in faith. He's not an architect. He's not an engineer. He's not a construction worker. He's not a military official. He's nothing. He is a wine taster. And he sees that something is destroyed that belongs to him and his God. And no one has fixed it. And he feels this deep call from God to get it fixed. And he says, send me. I'm ready. Let's do it. And I want to go now. And he's ready to walk in faith. And so often, we see these broken places in our lives, and we just say, God, fix it. 
Fix it, man. Get out there. Do it. But we've never stepped out in faith. We've never taken the step that it takes. We've never walked. We've just sat back and we pointed and we've made a lot of suggestions about how it could be better, but we haven't actually made any decisions. We've pointed fingers and said, well, this should be different and this should be different. And if this happens, then this will happen, then this will happen. But we're not doing anything. Nehemiah had to actually step out in faith and say, King, send me. I'm ready to go. And when we're sitting in that moment and we've been honest with God and we've stepped on our fears and we've acted out in courage and we said, God, this, is, this isn't how my life was supposed to go. This isn't how it is. And we hear that little whisper like, what do you want to do about it then? And it gives us that glimpse or that moment or that opportunity to fix it. Then we have to, have to stand up and go. Step out in faith. Get involved, not just sit, not just point, not just suggest, but do. I say it all the time, Christ called followers, not agreeers, not suggestioners, not finger pointers, followers. And the king's like, okay. And now Nehemiah's courage is bold. And he says, you know what else? How about you send me a whole bunch of men over there to go with me? And I want you to write some letters for me to give me safe passage through here and through there. And I want you to write a letter to this guy who owns a bunch of forests and tell him to give me all the lumber I want. And, and, and. And he keeps going and going and going and going. Asking for more and more and more and more. And man, this convicts me so much. I never, ever do that. You know what I usually try to do? And this has nothing to do with my spiritual upbringing. This has all to do with growing up in the poorest county in America and having parents who didn't have a lot of money. I always try to figure out what's the least amount I can get by with and be okay with that. And then I read the Bible, and God is constantly talking about how he wants to bless us till our cup is overflowing. And I'm not just talking about material things. I'm talking about in everything, in joy, in happiness, in peace. He wants to overflow, not just us get by, but he wants to give us the word here that is used is favor. We're to walk in his favor. He wants to give us and show us favor. I don't want my kids just to barely scrape by. I want them to enjoy life, to discover things, to have their needs met, yes, but their wants and their desires, and I pale in comparison to what God is like. And I'm so convicted at the way I look at him as this God who's just, he has, we'll sing songs, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and yet I'll ask him for like one blade of grass, like just enough. I didn't want to go into this, but real quick, there's a story of Lazarus and how, not the Lazarus that he raises, but this other Lazarus and he dies and he goes to heaven and this other guy goes to hell. It's this really weird story and they're separated by this lake of fire and this one guy's begging and he's like, could you just give me like one drop of water on my tongue? And they're like, no, you can't have anything. I wonder what would have happened if he had asked not for a drop of water. But like Peter, when Peter said, 
Jesus said, if I can't wash your feet, you can have no part in my kingdom. And he said, then don't just wash my feet. Dump the water on all of me. If the guy had said, I don't, I don't want a drop of water. I want the whole spring. And here we see Nehemiah saying, I'm not just going to be satisfied getting there. I want, I want to be able to do this. I need permission from here, 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 and here. He was walking in favor. He walked on fear, in faith, and in favor. But let me say this. Favor, uh, this is going to be a bunch of Fs I just realized in my head. Favor follows faith. Never the other way around. I remember when I was a little kid, my cousin, she would win all these contests and stuff. I hated her for it. And she one time won this other contest, and I was like, man. And I was crying to my mom and dad like a little baby, and I was like, you know what? Why can't I just win one of these one time? Why does she always win? And my dad said, did you enter? I was like, no. He's like, have you entered any of them? No. How are you going to win? And we sit there and we desire God's favor. Oh, look how God's blessing this person. Oh, look what God's doing for this person. But we're not even in. We've never even stepped out in faith. And we wonder why this person has found, quote, unquote, favor, which, honestly, from the outside looking in, favor always feels differently when you're inside it. It doesn't necessarily feel like, oh, these huge blessings that are being heaped on top of you. But we see that and we desire that, but we've never even stepped out in faith. We're not even in it. Why aren't things changing in my life? I'm not even working towards it. I'm not even taking a step. Maybe I got shot down because I'm too afraid. Maybe I got shot down because I stepped out at the wrong time and I wasn't waiting. Maybe I got shot down because I didn't ask for enough. And would never be completed with the amount I asked for. The very end of this said, and the king granted to me, why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah isn't unique in that. The good hand of God, it's upon you too. And me, and us. And if there was such a thing as them, them. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to the Hope Springs podcast. And a special thanks to Ashita for the music that you guys hear right now. Feel free to check us out on the web at www.hopespringscommunity.org. Thanks. God bless. Two dreams on the green grass and the birds speak.
not a night's past in the sun Shines not in old times but a new Pure taste as the day breaks in the heartache Step aside for some fresh dreams Oh, your soul screams arise You're to the day.